You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Managers at the Ivy Bookshop in Mount Washington in Baltimore. Um, I'm so delighted to welcome you to this reading with Carl Phillips and conversation with Leah Papura this evening. Um, the Ivy is so grateful to collaborate with the Pratt to provide books for these events. We talk constantly in the shop about how much admiration we have for all they've done to continue events and programming on top of their regular services during the pandemic. Um, so it's just a real honor to be here tonight in collaboration with the Pratt. Um, I also just wanted to say that we at the Ivy have been noticing uh, since we opened at our new location and have browsers coming through now that there's a lot more traffic in our poetry section than we've ever noticed before. Um, and this is just sort of an anecdotal observation, but people are really into poetry right now and finding their ways in from lots of different directions. Um, so in that context, I'm feeling particularly in awe to, to be here tonight with Carl Phillips, um, someone who's been pulling people into poetry and holding them there for a long time. Um, and how perfect that Carl is in conversation with Leah, who's a longtime friend of the Ivy and a writer we both we completely and deeply admire. Um, so I really hope you enjoy the event tonight. I'm going to put the links to purchase um, some of Leah and Carl's books in the chat right after um, I hand it off and yeah, I'm looking forward to an, a wonderful, excellent conversation. So I'm gonna hand it off to Shailene from the Pratt. Hi, thank you, Hannah. And I'm Shailene from the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And before we begin tonight's wonderful event, I have a couple library announcements. You can now check out materials, including books by Carl Phillips and Leah Purpura, contact-free through the sidewalk service at 21 Pratt locations. Also, the Pratt is now accepting entries for our free poetry contest. And if you are a Maryland resident age 18 or older, we would love to get an entry from you. Visit prattlibrary.org slash poetry contest for more information. And if you go to that page, you will also see links to some other great virtual poetry events we have coming up, including an event featuring Natasha Trelaway. Tonight, please feel free to post comments and questions either through the Zoom chat option, or if you're with us on Facebook, you can post in the comments and we'll get those either way. So I'm going to introduce Leah Purpura now, and then Leah will introduce Carl. Leah Purpura is the author of nine collections of essays, poems, and translations. A finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, she has won Guggenheim, NEA, and Fulbright Fellowships, as well as four Pushcart Prizes, the Associated Writing Programs Award in Nonfiction, and other awards. Her work appears in The New Yorker, The New Republic, Orion, the Paris Review, the Georgia Review, Agni, and elsewhere. She lives in Baltimore, where she is writer-in-residence at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. If hearing the phrase, 
Each drawer's glass knob, cool even in summer, makes you remember a doorknob you once held and felt twist under your fingers, releasing you into a world strangely fresh and wondrous, then you will appreciate the charm of Leah Purpura's latest book, where every detail yields vistas of meaning. That phrase about the doorknob comes from the title essay, All the Fiercest Tethers, which unravels the notion that our small lives are sad, turning over minute things to reveal radiant systems as gorgeous and sure as its own sentences. What a pleasure to share Leah's luminous visions and what a thrill to hear her tonight in conversation with Carl Phillips. Here is Leah Purpura. Oh, thank you so much for that. Um, I have some thanks of my own. Um, first of all, thanks to the Pratt for its truly inspired reading series, uh, for its art-sustaining ethos, and its constant commitment to writers, Baltimore-based and beyond. Uh, library folks are some of the most humble, creative, and generous people I know. And I want to give a big shout out to Tracy Diamond and Shailene Bayer uh, for taking care of every single detail uh, and for being so responsive to the range of voices in our community. Uh, thanks also to Hannah from the Visionary Ivy Books Bookshop, who you've already met, uh, and to Alyssa, who is our American sign language interpreter. An evening like this is an absolutely collaborative effort. So thank you all. Uh, it is my great honor to introduce the extraordinary poet, Carl Phillips, whose work I've followed and loved for many years. Carl Phillips is the author of 15 books of poetry, most recently, Pale Colors in a Tall Field. Previously, previous books, have been awarded the LA Times Book Prize and the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. He recently published a chapbook, Star Map with Action Figures. A four-time finalist for the National Book Award and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. His other honors include the Lambda Literary Award, awards from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Theodore Retke Memorial Foundation, the Tom Gunn Award for Gay Male Poetry, and fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Library of Congress, and the Academy of American Poets, for which he served as chancellor from 2006 to 2012. In his book on craft, The Art of Daring, Carl notes that poems transform rather than translate, and his own work absolutely abides by that statement, but it goes even further. Carl's poems allow for the act of reading itself to be transformed. With eddies of syntax, suspensions and reroutings that both lead and follow, that map their way into the unknown, his mode is restless. And so our reading must be too. A few days ago, I was walking uh, in Stony Run for out-of-towners, uh, that's a patch of urban woods uh, with a creek that runs through my neighborhood uh, in the city. And I looked up to see a red-tailed hawk and a much smaller bird circling each other. 
And then the hawk so deftly and precisely and silently snatched the small bird right out of the air, right out of flight and took it off to a high branch. It was shocking, beautiful, hard and right. And I recognized the sensation as not unlike the bracing lucidity I often experience reading Carl's work. Though profoundly personal, Carl's work for me refuses conventional forms of what we call the personal, meaning the confessional or the plot-driven narrative, and offers instead expansive states of being. These states of being shimmer and roam, are relentless and headlong. In his poems, the movement of mind often arrives at a precise declarative landing only to shift off it and become like fast moving water around a shining rock, searching out and elsewhere. Reading these poems, I feel I'm experiencing language at the moment the writer himself comes upon it. These gorgeous, patiently unfurling complex gestures are not part of any fixed project, but discovered in their wild state and feel far more intimate than any resolution might offer. More important, perhaps, these states of being would be entirely lost to us without the attention Carl lavishes on them. I am honored to present Carl Phillips. Thank you, Leah. Um, for that very generous and wonderful and characteristically smart introduction. Um, I really appreciate it. And I actually, I, I love that comparison to the, as brutal as it is to the hawk and the bird and, and the rightness of it in some strange way. Thank you. Um, and, and I too want to, to thank, um, Shailene and uh, Tracy at the at the uh, Enoch Pratt, Pratt Free Library and uh, Alyssa for the signing and Hannah at Ivy Books. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for making this come together. Um, so as I understand it, I'm going to read some poems uh, and mostly from, from the book uh, that is um, still kind of new, Pale Colors in a Tall Field. And I'll just throw in, in between three other poems that are from a book coming out next year. Um, and so I guess I'll just start. And I hope it'll all work out. Uh, all right, so this is called On Being Asked to Be More Specific When It Comes to Longing. When the forest ended, so did the star flowers and wild ginger that for so long had kept us company. The clearing opened before us, a vast meadow of silverrod, each stem briefly an angled argument against despair, then only weeds by a better name again, as incidental as the backdrop the ocean made just beyond the meadow. Like taking a horsewhip to a swarm of bees, that they might more easily disperse. We'd at last reach the point in twilight where twilight seems most a bowl designed to turn routinely, but as if by accident, half roughly over. Bells somewhere, the kind of bells that 
before being housed finally in their towers, used to have to be baptized. Each was given to swing by or fall hushed inside of, accordingly, its own name. Bells, and then from the smudged edge of all that seemed to be left of what we'd called belief once, bodies, not of hunting birds, what we'd thought at first, but human bodies in flight in flight and lit from within as if by ruin or triumph maybe at having made out of ruin a light something useful by which having skimmed the water to search the meadow now for ourselves inside it where yes though we shook in our nakedness we lay naked as we'd been taught to do when afraid what is faith but to make a gift of yourself give and you shall receive. That's kind of a tongue twister to sign to. So I apologize. Um, this next poem is called To All Appearances. We drove to head of the meadow beach because we'd always meant to and never had. And we'd been wanting to swim again. And we did swim. And it was as if all those years of surrendering differently, but with equal abandon to joy or sorrow, depending on which had come when and in what form, had vanished. We stood precisely at that point in being young that's just before the moment when what we expect is one thing and what we hope another. As I said, we did swim. We swam until it no longer looked like swimming, but instead more like trying to rescue whatever inside ourselves had mattered once from ourselves by moving farther away from it. I should have said I don't say too many things in between poems. I guess because I, I hope it all works out without having to say anything. Uh, so I'll move on to this poem called For Nothing Tender About It. If as shame is to sorrow, okay, I'm going to start over. If as shame is to memory, so too desire, then is this desire, this cloak of shadows that I wrap close around me, that I refuse to take off? but the lake looks endless and my boat's increasingly but a slowish swimmer across the waves. I've known hurt, I mean, and I have been afraid. Sometimes the difference between forgetting to bring along artillery and showing up on purpose to the war unarmed is just that, a difference. Sometimes a lost tune unreckoned on, unearned, resurfaces anyway, just because. Am I not the animal by belief alone I myself make possible? I don't know, so that's why it ends that way. Um, <clears throat> I don't know what I am. And this poem is a poem from a book that's coming out next year that's called Then the War. Um, 
it's a strange book that is kind of a double book. It's, it's a whole regular book of poems. That's what it was supposed to be. And it is that, but then the idea to do a newer selected poems added to it um, is so it's like two books in one in some strange way, as opposed to the usual new and selected where people have like a handful of new poems. This is why I don't say things between poems. Okay. So this one's called that the gods must rest. That the gods must rest doesn't mean that they stop existing. Is that true? Do you believe it's true? I could tell it was morning by all the crows rising again from that otherwise abandoned husk of a car over there. So ruined. Who can tell the make of it now? What color? Or maybe if being stranded on a wind farm at night with no stars to sing to could be a color. That color, maybe. The way an unexpectedly fine idea will sometimes emerge from what looked on the outside like the mind as usual treading water was the crows rising. A misleading clarity to the air, like logic. He only wants what he deserves. He deserves everything he wants. I deserve all I've ever built and fought for. We deserve our loneliness. On a possibly happier note, but I'm not certain. Uh, oh, so this is called So the Edge of the World. Not on a happier note, just a continued realistic note. So the Edge of the World. Back then, we'd fall asleep to the wind at night. The wind was enough. I think we thought sleep meant rescue. And because sleep came easily, always unannounced, we were safe. But if safe, why the need for rescue? And since when does rescue amount variously now to the forgetting that sleep offers, now to dreams not so predictable distraction, I almost said aloud into the rooms dark all around us last night, Though this morning, these seem precisely what rescue comes to, or can, and my mistake has been in thinking of rescue as something more permanent than hard distraction, sleep's soft, impermanent forgetting. The wind was enough, mostly. Not always. Not those nights when the wind, as if done at last with forever having been a wind, became all song instead a song of abandonment, a wordless one, when you abandon a thing best, if you can, to do so utterly, without words, yet with an outward tenderness so believable, why else does it hurt still, even now, the mere idea of singing it? Uh, this next poem is called Blow It Back. How, it, how they woke finally in a bed of ferns, horsetail ferns, how they died singing. All night, meanwhile, 
as if somehow the fox's mouth that so much of this life has amounted to had briefly unshut itself and the moth that's trapped there, unharmed, gone free, a snow fell. The snow-filled street seemed a toppled column like the one in the mind called doubt or that other one, persuasion, the broken one in three clean pieces. Well, it's morning now. Out back, the bamboo bows and stiffens. Thoughts in a wind. Thoughts like, but nobody's saying it. Nobody, I think, knows me better by now than you do. Or like, the bamboo bowing, stiffening, seems like nothing so much as, in this light, competing forms of betrayal that, given time, must surely cancel each other out. Close your eyes. Patience. Wait. Maybe less the foliage than the promise of it. Less that shame exists, maybe, than that the world keeps saying it does. Know it. Hold on tight to it. As if the world were rumor, how every rumor rings true lately. When I'm ashamed, I make a point of reminding myself what is shame, but to have shown, to have let it show that variety of love that goes hand in hand with having wished to please and in pleasing for a while belong. So shame can, like love, be an eventual way through? There's a minor chord sparrows make with doves that's not the usual business. It's not sad at all, any of it. This always waiting for what I've always waited for, this not being able to assign to what's missing some shape, a name, this body neither antlered nor hoofed, brave too, this body, unapologetic. Let's look at the script here. Uh, I'm going to read this the title poem of that book I mentioned. This is called Then the War. They planted flowers because the house had many rooms and because they'd imagined a life in which cut flowers punctuate each room as if each were a sentence, not just to be decorated, but to be given some discipline with the most memorable sentences like people always slightly resist. Spit of land, rags of cloud rack. Meanwhile, hawk's nest, winter nest, stamina as a form of faith, little cove that a life equals, what they meant, I think, by what they called the soul, twilight taking hold deep in the marshweed, in the pacassandra, where the wind can't reach. Then the war, then the field and the mounted police parading their proud looking horses across it. Then the next morning's fog, the groundsman barely visible inside it, shadow-like, shade-like, grooming the field back to immaculateness. Then the curtains billowing out from the lightless room toward the sea. Then the one without hair stroked the one who had some. 
they closed their eyes. If gently, hard to say how gently. Then the war was nothing that still bewildered them, if it ever had. What do these poems mean? I don't know. Um, but what I can say, I hope the timing is right on this. I was going to say there's three poems left. So I hope that's going to be fine. Oh, okay. That'll be fine. We can chat. Um, okay. This is called, If It Must Be Winter. Back to this Pale Colors book. If It Must Be Winter. I realized that this poem also has bees in it. And I had bees in the first poem. I'm not sure what the thing is with bees. I know one, I'm supposed to be quite allergic to them. Two, that my partner wants to have beehives in the backyard. What does that mean? Okay, if it must be winter. Oh, which I can say this title comes from, it's from a line by, um, it's a line from a poem by Linda Gregg, um, a poem, a poet who's hugely influential for me. and. I don't remember the poem, but her poem ends with this line, if it must be winter, let it be absolutely winter. So this poem is called, If It Must Be Winter. Not crowns, not conquest, defined in terms of how many fear you or fear to say otherwise. Not by these will you know your own royalty, but in smaller ways how to the least gesture, there's more power than seems reasonable, though it will feel deserved. So I was told, and they have not proved wrong. I've but to open my hand, bees come to it, the slick fur of bees assembling as toward an honor in no way expected, though each time the honor remains mine, as if almost it should as if certain privileges had to do with destiny. Do I believe that? Do I? My hand a sea, across which the wings of the bees flash like signal flags, whose patterns, instead of translating, I make up my own translations for. I shall do as I please, as a lovely argument can make a difficult truth more clear if not more sweet. Though is there not a sweetness to clarity that can almost make the truth seem worth it? To say I'm not quite sure makes me no less king here. Sometimes I open my hand and there's no sea at all, just a windy plain. What appear to be dust storms crossing it turn out on reaching me to be the disappointments, all of them that I never intended, each one on horseback, my cavalry, each face raised toward mine as if awaiting command, hungering for it, forgetful or stupid. I can see no difference. Look away from me. I haven't said you can look at me. Oh. Um, but it's okay to look here, you know, in real life. Um, and then I have this, this next poem is called, it's in two parts, but I'll just, 
fall sort of into silence for a second. That will be an asterisk appearing on a page. Uh, uh, this poem is called Entire Known World So Far. What's meant to be wind emerges from what's presumably a god's mouth, as if people thought that way once, as I have read they did, though I have never believed it. Yes, the stag inexplicably there on a raft at sea, how the light catches in the runnelled fur of a dog's underpaws as he steers across dream. Yes, the gods and their signs, if you want, everywhere. But the wind is the wind. The map makes the world seem like a human body when it's been stripped and you can finally see it for the world it is plunderable, almost in places as if asking for it. Who wouldn't want to lay waste to it? The map suggests, suggests the hands that made the map with the kind of grace that proves grace can be a sturdiness too. But the world is not like a human body or the dark that just past twilight overtakes a canyon or the shiver of sleigh bells on the collar of an invisible donkey scratching itself in the dark, in the cold of it. Donkey bells. I just wanted to end a poem with donkey bells. Um, <clears throat> and which I presume someone asked me, what are donkey bells? They're bells that you tie on a donkey. So you can know where it is, of course. Um, so I'm going to end with this poem called Defiance, which ends the book. And um, <clears throat> it too has a strange kind of weird left turn at the end. And there's a mention of Homer and the Iliad. You don't have to have read the Iliad. You don't have to even know who Homer is. He's just somebody who wrote stuff. <clears throat> um, so don't be afraid. Defiance. Some say the point of war is to make the need for tenderness more clear. Some say that's an effect of war, the way beauty can be. Homer's Iliad, for example, or many centuries later, how the horse's head to protect it in combat would be fitted with a chaffron, a strip of steel, sometimes mixed with copper, all of it hammer worked, parts detailed, in gold. I love you as I've always loved you, one man says, meaning it to another. That doesn't make love true. This only needs to be troubling if we want it to be. Our minds are as the days are, dark or bright, says Homer. The words like coral bells in a pot made to look like the head of an ancient god, a sea god, moss for seaweed across the old God's face. To believe in ritual in the name of hope, there lies disaster. And turned to him and took his hand, the scarred one. I could feel the scars, little crowns, mass coronation. For by then, all the lilies on the pond.
had opened. Thank you. Carl, I know it's so you. strange in a Zoom room, you know, it's like, thanks. It's, it's very strange. Yeah. I, I am just clapping en masse for everyone. Well, thanks. Thanks for... It was just gorgeous. Thanks for staying. Gorgeous. <laughs> one, one of the things I um, like best after readings is to sit quietly and silently. Um, and yet we have, we have some chat to do. So... Yep. I'm going to have to break the space I'm in right now. Um, I have a few things prepared, so oh. I'm just going to read them out to save uh, save some time, and then I will try to um, uh, monitor the chat. I'm not the most agile chat monitor, so <laughs> forgive me. Okay. So I have a question about writing in the actual moment that we're in like right mm -hmm. now, because reading your work is like being engaged with a musculature, um, with a mind and it's many agile moves, rerouting and delaying and interrupting and of course, image making. And for me, um, the creation of nuance is a kind of balm to the manipulations and degradations of um, political language. Right. So I'm wondering what it what it feels like to you to be poeting at this moment, um, mm -hmm. what it is like to write into a climate that largely refuses and sometimes actively denounces complexity of thought uh, and expression. Yes, <clears throat> excellent question. I was just. I texted to a friend this afternoon. I was having a slight dip, a little moment of slight despair. <laughs> and and uh, I, was, I, was, I was saying that I, I feel sometimes as a poet, as if, as if I'm writing in some world that no longer exists um, or that's somehow irrelevant, you know, because the idea of moral compasses of trying to, to find meaning, to, to actually spend some still time delving deeply into meaning sometimes seems ridiculous um, or treated as ridiculous. But um, so I guess sometimes that's how I feel, but mostly not. I think because from the start, I have, for me, poetry has been a real kind of wrestling on the page with, with things that are with conundrum. I guess. And it began with things like the body and queerness, things like that, that, that were at the time strange to me. And, and I, and I guess I, what I remind myself of is that it's still, no matter what the climate is like politically um, or pandemically, um, we're still human beings in a body. We're each trying to figure out how do you do this thing? Like, live in a body that is only yours and somehow also navigate all the other bodies that re that are and aren't your own. And, and I guess I feel as if that's a lifelong quest, but not just for me, but for all of us. And I'm not even sure it ever gets figured out. Um, you know, except we just sort of think we've made some progress and step back and keep revising. And, and so to me, 
I guess how I've been poeting is, is first of all, still doing that because it's an imperative, a kind of imperative for me. It's, I don't, I always feel it's too dramatic to say I write in order to live or something, but, but it does feel that way. I feel as if I write in order to think a way into the next day and, or into the next space before I need to write a poem again and, and wrestle with those thoughts. So it seems, it seems important to still do that because it's a kind of, I don't know, a questing forward, but it's also important to hold tightly to the intimacy of one's own space, one's own thinking. And a poem allows me to do that too. So I still have that kind of retreat. It's a retreat thing. And then with luck, it's something that if I share it with others, it's, it resonates in some way. I hope a little bit of a rambling answer there. Not at all. Not at all. That's sort of the whole field of, you know, where, um, where the drive comes from and what, and how, you know, you're sustaining it even, you know, amid those little dips that you, you talked about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, and also when I wonder what the point is sometimes of writing, um, poems in this environment I actually turn to an unusual model maybe Emily Dickinson I think about how she was writing things that there's still the questions that we ask ourselves you know what is life what is beyond this life if anything what does it mean to be mortal um and and she's doing that in a time of civil war and other major things are going on but that's not her subject her subject seems to be how to be a certain kind of complicated mind and, and sort of understand that you aren't entirely in sync with the society around you. And, and it's as if the poems create a society. So I don't know I think, well, it worked for her. It's important. <laughs> and I don't think she was doing it for anything except necessity. And as opposed to thinking it has to add up to something and, um, or change the world. That that is um, so beautiful and such a sustaining way to think about the sort of sanctity of one's own individual mind, um, yeah. way and presence. I was going to save this question for the end, mm-hmm. um, but I'm going to ask you now because you made some some dips into it already. Um, you said. You had a really um, beautiful recent tweet in response to Amanda Gorman's stunning inaugural poem. Mm -hmm. Um, And you said, um, one of the most exciting things about poetry for me is the world of ways to think about an idea and to express it. I learn about being a more complete human by reading all the poets who aren't me or anything like me. It's a form of democracy. And Mm -hmm. and I just loved that, a form of democracy, because some poems are written with an eye to public voicing and others with a more private encounter in mind. And um, you you started addressing that a little bit um, in your response to the last question. And I'm wondering, do do, do you think about the space into which your poems will be spoken or taken or about the shapes of private speech and more public speech in your work as you're composing 
Does it only occur to you when you're reading and you're suddenly mm -hmm. enforced in the public? You're you're sort of in a in a publicly enforced place. Yeah, it's well, it is mostly that last description. Mm -hmm. I happen to I don't think I can write in general, I don't think I can write knowing not only I, I can't be thinking about an audience, I also can't write if I know what I'm going to write about. Um, for me, for if someone commissioned, if they, I've had many people try to commission a poem and I usually can't do it because, um, because then I'm aware I'm writing a poem and I'm writing it about this. And I write by getting lost and, and trusting that, that what I feel like is lostness is actually going somewhere. And, and, and I want to be surprised and I can't be surprised if I know where I'm going. So, um, so that's, you know, that's me, but, but I'm also aware that of course, as with Amanda Gorman's poem, there are poems that are directed very specifically to an audience um, from the start. And, 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 yeah, with that tweet, it was in response to, I had praised Amanda's poem and, and someone said they didn't believe I really liked it. They said, oh, you know, it's, it wasn't a poem like one of yours, Carl, that, you know, is deep and thinky or whatever they were trying to say. And, and I was, my tweet that you read, um, I guess I just was thinking how they're, they're, I read all kinds of poems and, but not just that I do that, I feel it's essential. You know, I don't want my poems to be the only kind of poems in the world. And um, I'm only one person. So, you know, and I feel like if we actually would like to understand something about what it is to be a human being, it, we need to hear from a whole bunch of them and, and sort of take what we want from all of them. And each time I feel as if each poem I read by anybody gives me a slightly new take on something that I thought I understood and, or new ways of using language. And so, and ways of understanding my own limitations. I could not do a poem like the Amanda Gorman's poem. I couldn't have delivered it that way either. Um, and, and I, but I, I realize it's important for me to realize that it, I say my limitations, but I feel like it lets me know what else is, is out there and it's okay that I don't do that. We each do what we are able to do. So, um, and, and rather than feeling competitive about it, I, I guess I think, isn't that great that someone's doing that thing I can't do? And isn't it great that I do this thing that only I can do because it comes from my head? And, you know, I don't know. When people talk about community, that's my idea of community. Not all hanging out and talking about poetry, but actually just reading so widely and across decades and centuries yeah it's beautiful it's a it's such a um a helpful and confirming definition of community you know and and ways that that readers are are so much part of our community as writers oh sure um, you know that sure. sense of a reader and uh you know a sort of unknown presence out there that you do speak into you know you do write into yeah and it's it's uh even social media, social media has been so, I mean, for being such a private person as I am, I love social media because it's where I, I get all my ideas of what I'm going to read next. Um, you know, someone's excited. I just ordered some Danish memoirs that 
um, of, of fiction writer, Brandon Taylor, um, friend of mine, I really only know him on Instagram. And, and he had a picture of these books that he just read and loved them. And I thought, you know, Danish World War II memoir, why not? I need something totally different. And I realized I've hardly read anything that's from Danish. So, um, so there's another whole world that's opening up. That's exciting. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to take a look at some of the chat questions. There are a couple that can be conflated. I think. Um, can Mr. Phillips please discuss his new book in more detail? What are some of the themes who are the influences? And that kind of holds hands with another question. What new obsessions are you currently exploring? Huh. Well, they're good questions. I mean, I, I feel like sometimes all I want to ever say is each book is just, you know, the further, further thoughts of Carl. Um, <laughs> I don't, because, you know, I liked one of the things you said, Leah, in your introduction, we talked about my books not so much being a project um but because of that yeah um I it's hard for me to say sometimes like I, I kind of envy friends of mine who will say well this is I'm doing a book on on this person's life or I'm doing a book on ekphrastic poems um or you know whatever it might be um the color uh, blue mm-hmm. yeah. yes mm-hmm. and and I just so I guess I feel as if in this next book then the war um what is it about i mean in many ways it's things that have i've been obsessed with forever like memory um i'm very i'm fascinated with as befits somebody who's 61 i'm fascinated with how how do you maintain a kind of restlessness of imagination Mm -hmm. but also um restlessness of the body how do you do that as you get older, how do you stay in motion and growing? Um, because I find one thing as one gets older is one wants to be sure of, you know, I'm less likely to want to jump off a cliff to see what happens. Um, and, and, you know, so you're aware of mortality. And at the same time, I don't want to deny risk because I think that's how I can grow. Or, or how do you, um, when you are in a wonderful committed relationship so how do you factor in restlessness of the body, um, you know, when you are in a monogamous relationship? So these kinds of challenges are things I, I guess I'm interested in writing about. And, and, but I feel like it's hard to say um, exactly how it, how it translates, but <clears throat> I can tell that the poems in, in this book, Pale Colors, and in this next book, Then the War, are very, they're very influenced by the last four years. Um, The way of some of what we've been talking about, the sort of instability of moral compasses, um, what seems sometimes like a complete indifference anymore to truth, or truth is somehow uh, snarkily meant, but, um, but or beauty. And, and, and I guess I, I'm, I'm a little worried about that. And so maybe those are some things. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I feel, this is where I sometimes feel limited. And again, I turn to Emily Dickinson because I 
sometimes think, well, I'm sure someone said this one time, but there are poets who continually, they write, they're kind of like, they write and the, the subjects get broader and broader. And then there are those who just stay in one place and keep digging down. And I feel like one of those ones who dig down where I'm not likely to sort of suddenly incorporate baseball or something into one of my poems, which doesn't mean I don't watch baseball and care about it. It's just not something I end up writing about. And, and I, so I feel as if I've taken certain things that I started out talking about sex. um, What is the spiritual, if there's such a thing, um, how, what is, what is risk? What is restlessness? All those things. And I've stayed with them, but it turns out that's okay because one's relationship to that changes, changes, you know, with age. So how I think about something as simple as love um, at 25 is very different now at 61 or sex at 30 and sex now. And, um, and, and to me, it's fascinating to keep recording how is it now? What is it like now? So the subjects don't change so much, but, but the experiences through which I see the same subject, um, they keep deepening, I hope. So I hope that doesn't make it seem like the next book won't be interesting. It'll just be, if you're interested in those subjects, then it'll be interesting. That was absolutely, you know, um, just gorgeous frame about the longevity of uh, or frame up for the longevity of ongoing lifelong, you know, we say obsessions, poets like to say obsessions, Mm -hmm. but it, it, it really is, you know, these are the sort of frames or portals, you know, we have affixed and, and work, work on and work over, you know, as an, as an artist might, you know, have a certain theme, um, or series or variations, you know, moving through. Yeah. There are, there are so many good questions here. Um, I'm glad we inspired them. Yes. Here's, um, here's one that um, does kind of refer to the larger community of influence. Um, Mm. James Hall asks, can you say um, more about what draws you to Linda Gregg or what you draw from her work? Yes, I can. Hi, James. And I'm happy Um, to ask that also because um, her work is really important to me as mm -hmm. well. And I'm so happy to bring her presence in into the conversation a little bit. So I am too. Speaking of community, you know, includes the dead um, very much. So Um, uh, I feel, well, first of all, I think that um, I was, I studied Greek and Latin in college. And the reason I even studied it is because I had read Sappho in translation in high school. And I wanted to, I wanted to be able to read this language in the original. And at the time, I didn't know that that work just existed in fragments. I thought, how cool, it's so spare. Anyway, um, Linda Gregg sometimes seems to me to be one of those um, poets of the 20th century that, who, who held on to that that interesting classical purity. And the poems often usually are pretty short. Um, She doesn't waste words in any way. So I feel as if I learned a lot about economy. I also learned a strategy from her, um, 
that uh, the strategy of of creating a relationship between sentences and fragments, and which might seem an obvious thing, but I had never thought of it. And and so she has a way of of alternating fragments and sentences that feels as if it it makes emotion palpable. Um, I feel as if she shows me the kind of stutter of of um, how we actually think, not in smooth ways, but in, in in sort of segments. And for a moment, we we burst forth like a sort of the river comes opens up, and then there's a slight you know damming of it or something. And and that has something about that was very instructive to me. Um, I read her first book, um, Too Bright to See, mm-hmm. almost every almost every month. Um, it's next to the bed. It's kind of like a Bible. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, each time I learn something. And, and she also tends to, in that book especially, leave, I learned something about how to end a poem um, by not ending it. And again, we, we all can learn these things from many different writers, but she's the one. I, I found it through and, and, and also I, I hate this term to be given permission, but I do feel she kind of gave me permission to, Mm -hmm. to write about vulnerability, I suppose, that it was enough to feel, to, to express hurt and not to make anything of it simply to, to say, this is what, here's a raw feeling and then to walk away from it. And as, as, um, as, as much as I like to sort of move sentences and syntax around, I'm not really big on argument in poems. I'm, I'm more interested in sort of having a reader feel what it is right now to think in this way. And, and so it can leave one feeling a little bit stranded at the end of the poem, but I find that in her poems too. And, and, and I don't feel stranded. I feel invited to kind of start journeying on my own. Again, it's a very long answer to, nice. I could speak forever about Linda Gray, yeah. but I love her work. Yeah. Um, I, I love too that you, you use the phrase her classical uh, pure, pu- uh, yeah, classical purity. Uh-huh. Um, for me, reading, reading her is, um, it is like a purification. It is like a <laughs> fire or a scouring back yeah. to absolute form and shape and bone yeah yeah so um i'm going to try and get to maybe one more question here or two if we can mm-hmm. um and i'm trying to find some questions that are you know speak for others here's one from elantra hall the ideas of faith belief and surrender seem to show up quite a bit in your work or at least in your selection tonight Mm-hmm. Um, was that intentional? What do you think is the intersection of these in poetry? So faith, belief, and surrender in mm-hmm. poetry, are they important at all in poetics? Well, um, that's another good question. I, they are important to me, yes. Um, I'm, I have been interested, this is another thing that started from my studying Greek and Latin in college. I started noticing in uh, Greek tragedy, that what they all have in common, those plays, is there's a conflict between what people want to do 
and what is considered what the gods, what you should be doing if you're respecting the gods. Um, and that conflict um, often seems to be, have to do with the body and the way you conduct yourself versus how you're told you should conduct yourself. So I've long been interested in, in what it means to be, um, I, I mean, I myself am not a believer in anything in particular um, religiously, but I'm fascinated with what it means to surrender to what is not provable um, because that to me is absolute faith. And I'm also interested in how that, intersects with certain sexual behaviors or really sex at all um because to me sex is also a surrendering it's certainly it's an opening up of your body it's showing somebody your body so um it's and and what does that so to me that means that you have to trust and have faith in a person so that's not religious faith but i'm interested in how the two are kind of analogous um and, and in terms of poetics, yes, I do believe uh, that for me, I, I think for me to have access to whatever it is that makes a poem happen means being utterly open to, to what you perceive mm-hmm. and utterly open to, I guess, to what you're feeling inside, which sounds a little smarmy, but... Mm-hmm. But, but it's sort of like, you know, we go around through the day when we used to interact with humans, um, you know, in person, we have our kind of armor in a way. And even if we're being friendly or laughing, even that is a, is a presentation. But to me, to actually write honestly is to strip all of that away and sort of say, what do I actually feel? What do I actually think? Which is partly why going back to an early question, why I can't think about audience. Because if I thought about that, I'll start thinking, oh, people will think this is stupid or that I shouldn't say this, um, that I really feel this way. But then the poem won't be honest. So, so yes, surrendering, having some faith that, 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 it's, that it's safe to open yourself up in this way mm-hmm. seems important. I think that's sort of an answer. It's a spectacular answer. Oh, okay, um, good. Yes, thank you. I can't you. tell when these things are coming out of my mouth, you know? Well, yeah, because there's no other, like, <laughs> human right next to you. So yeah. um, just thank you for all of the ways that you extended and deepened everyone's questions. And thank you for your reading and well, generosity. Thank you, thank you Leah, for all of this. Thanks for the questions. Thank you, everyone, for making it happen. Um, yes. Yeah. I, so. I'm somehow always impressed when this actually, it works. Like, it did. I'm, it I'm still alone in my room somehow, but oh, yeah. apparently other people have, have participated. We all did. Yeah. It was pr- very participatory. Um, yeah. So thank you. Shailene, I think you wanted to say a few last Yes. Thank you. I've been hesitating to <laughs> jump in because I was just—I've just been loving listening to the two of you talk so much. Um, I'm sure I speak for everyone here when I say that it's been a really inspiring evening. Um, just um, Carl, your reading was so beautiful, and then to hear the two of you together—it's um, just inspiring to, uh, you know, to see how your search for beauty and truth. Um, 
how that you know, makes the light for all of us in, in the world, especially during these difficult days. So I want to thank both of you very much. And thank you also to the Ivy Bookshop and to Alyssa for signing. Mm -hmm. And thank you especially thank you. also to our audience for being with us tonight. And um, a link to a survey has been posted in the Zoom chat, I believe, and also on Facebook. And if you can all take a minute to fill that out, that helps us plan future programs. Um, have a wonderful rest of your evening. Everyone take care and stay safe. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.